Well, good morning, friends. A special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. You couldn't have picked a better week. We're jumping into a new three-week series called Locker Room. And in honor of the topic or the branding of the series, I brought one of my new favorite possessions in the whole world. Check it out. Oh, yeah. Now, hold on. One of you, and I don't know who, left this on my desk and said, I thought you should have this. And those of you who aren't familiar with number 10 from Michigan a few years back, Tom Brady's jersey right there. And of course, my name is Brady, so that's pretty sweet. (laughs) What I don't know is that if it was not a Michigan fan, it is conceivable that you were walking through Dick's Sporting Goods and saw a Michigan jersey with Brady on it and thought, oh, I'll get that for my pastor. And you don't know about Tom Brady, but that's okay. He is the GOAT as they say. Um, I also should note that I almost didn't bring this out after the game yesterday. If you guys saw, I was in the big house and I think I took a few years off my life. That was bad. Army fans, I know there were a few of you here. The army guys are tough. And as I say that, I'm like, of course they are. They're the army. They're supposed to be tough. Also wanted to give a shout out to the Michigan State folks. They, they looked awesome. And also the Western Michigan folks, I know you're here seeking the comfort of the Lord. That's what we're here for, all right? So don't even worry about it. Hey, uh, so we decided to call this series Locker Room because I wanted to give you a series of pep talks as we sort of enter the fall as one of the people on staff who gets to sort of coach this community as we try to be who we set out to be uh, when we set out as a church some 25 years ago. Because whether you know it or not, we're a church on a mission. Uh, And whether this is your first Sunday or you've been here since the beginning, my hope is that you feel invited to join the team as we move forward to help people find and follow Jesus. Well, to set the stage for our conversation today, what I want to do is read to you a section of an email from someone who had been visiting Keystone and was experiencing some tension, I think good tension, and I just want to show you what, what they wrote. So here we go. It said, Dear Brady, years ago, I decided I wasn't a church person. Apparently there's like categories, church person, gear. Growing up, I came to believe that church was for perfect people and I wasn't one. Well, a few weeks ago, my neighbor invited me to join them for a weekend service at Keystone and it wasn't at all what I was expecting. For the first time, I felt free to bring my mess with me into church. I felt encouraged to ask questions and to be honest in my spiritual journey. I found myself wondering, this is my favorite part, can church really be like this? (laughs) Like, is this fair? To be honest, it feels a bit too good to be true. And I've actually had this conversation with many, many people who visited Keystone over the years, and a common denominator seems to be people who grew up in religious traditions that emphasize perfection or performance find Keystone pretty disorienting. Uh, Many of us have friends who have left church or were kicked out because of a life situation. And so they come to Keystone and they experience a sort of welcome that, that really they weren't planning on. It can be so disruptive. I even had a friend a few years back say to me, you know, um, we love Keystone. We're here every weekend, but we also go to another church. And I said, oh, that's fine. And they go, no, you don't understand. We're still trying to decide if Keystone really counts. (laughs) I thought that was great. I was like, come on, right? But, But all of that to me raises a really great question. And it's a question that a group of friends 25 years ago who were planting a church called Keystone asked. And it goes like this. It says, what did Jesus have in mind for his church. Because church has taken on a lot of different colors and textures and flavors. But when you, when you pull away all the tradition, you say, what, what, what should a church that is following after Jesus really look like? What did Jesus have in mind 
when he planted his church. And, and for me, this was a very, very personal question because of how Keystone intersected with my life back in the year 1996. Whoa, remember back in the day? Some of you are like, I wasn't born yet. It's okay, it's okay. Uh, this is a picture of me from that era I found in the archives. Check it out. Had to beat the ladies off with a bat, I did. That's right. So, yep, all right. But it was the mid-90s, and uh, a group of friends decided that Grand Rapids really didn't need another church. But Grand Rapids needed a different kind of church. A church where anyone was welcome to find and follow Jesus. A place where you could bring your doubts and your baggage and your concerns. A church where you didn't have to be perfect or meet some sort of performance standard. A place, and this, this again was right at the heart, right at the beginning, a place that believed that God desires a relationship with everyone, everywhere. And I remember sitting on a couch in a living room in one of these meetings and thinking, man, if a church could actually do this, it would be almost irresistible. And I also remember a few days later when I was having lunch with our founding pastor, Gene DeYoung, and I just said, you know, that approach is very different than what I'm used to in church. I mean, where in the world did you get that inspiration? And he smiled and he said, you know, we got the idea from Jesus. And, and, and then he said, but don't take my word for it. He handed me a New Testament. He says, read it for yourself. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at how Jesus interacts with people. That's how we think church should interact with people. And so I opened the New Testament. And with fresh eyes, I read those accounts of Jesus' life. And what I found was that over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus frustrated religious people because he invited almost everyone he met to become his follower. Messy people, imperfect people, rich people, poor people, damaged people, traitors and foreigners and people who had gone too far, people who had done too much, people who had said the wrong things, people who'd done the wrong things, people who said the wrong things, done the wrong things and were sorry about it, people who said the wrong things, done the wrong things and weren't sorry about it, people who needed a second chance and were convinced they wouldn't get one. People who believed that God wanted nothing to do with someone like them. And into this world, Jesus brought an incredibly disruptive message. God desires a restored relationship with every person ever. No matter what you've done, you haven't gone too far. God wants to adopt you into his family. And in fact, it's impossible to disqualify yourself from the love of God through your behavior. That's right at the heart of what Jesus came to tell us. But there was another message, and it was kind of right on the side of that message, and, and it was a warning to religious people or religiously inclined people. And this message was almost as disruptive in the first century. Here's what Jesus would say to them. He would say, it's possible to follow all the rules and miss the heart of God. It's possible to follow all the rules obsessively, compulsively, and to miss the heart of God. Of God. And some of you grew up in church where rules were front and center and you're like, I totally have been a part of a system like that, right? And it looks good on the outside because everybody's going the same direction and yet like there's no, there's no heart behind it. And there's a good reason for that. If you read the accounts of Jesus' life, what you start to see over and over again is God is looking for more than rule followers. He's looking for kids, sons and daughters. He wants relationship with people. And so, yeah, you're going to look different when you follow after Jesus. But, but when the rules become more important than the relationship, we lose something central to what Jesus came to do. Well, this morning with our time, what I want to do is, is take you into the text and I want to explore a scene from the life of Jesus where this message is on full display. 
It takes place on the Temple Mount right at the center of Jerusalem. It's a 45-acre site. This is a picture someone took with a drone. I didn't because if I put up a drone in, over Jerusalem, I'd probably get shot. But anyway, um, so it's 45 acres right here. This is the second holiest site in Islam. It's called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, you know, when we go there, we'll take a walk around the Temple Mount. It's a pretty significant piece of real estate. In the first century, though, it looked like this. Uh, this was the Jewish temple. It was one of the largest temple complexes ever in the ancient world. This large court you see around the outside is the court of the Gentiles, sort of where anybody could go. And then you had the court of the Jews and the court of the men. And then right in the center there, uh, the temple proper, there are two rooms in that temple building. There's the holy place and something called the Holy of Holies, separated by a purple curtain. Inside the Holy of Holies, in earlier days, you would have found the Ark of the Covenant before Indiana Jones got involved, as they say, right? Uh, the other important thing I want you to see, though, um, is some steps that were located at the southern end of the temple. Uh, and these were the steps there where people would enter to bring sacrifices to God when they had sinned. So they had done something wrong that they believed broke relationship with God and they needed to atone or pay for that mistake. And so they would bring a lamb or a ram or a goat or a bird and they would walk up these steps and they would go to the altar in front of the temple where a fire was always burning and priests were there to help you, you know, to kill the animal and the blood would fill and spill and then you would know that your sins were forgiven and you would walk back down those same stairs free. This in the ancient world, the Jewish people saw this as the place where heaven and earth came together. It was a thin place, they called it. So these stairs were very literally to them the stairway to heaven. This was the epicenter of God's activity on earth. It was holy ground. But to me, the steps are significant because everybody that we're going to meet in our scene today walked up these steps to the Temple Mount early one morning and had a powerful encounter with Jesus. Here's, here's what happened in John, an early Jesus follower who was there recorded it for us. John tells us this. He says, at dawn, so again, imagine the sun rising in, over the mountains and the light starting to spill onto the temple complex. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, those big outer courts, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So Jesus was becoming a preeminent rabbi, a Jewish teacher. And people had heard of the miracles that he had performed. They heard of these radically different ideas he was teaching. And so everywhere Jesus went, he would draw a crowd. And, and there were lots of people in Jerusalem that morning. Actually more than normal because it was the last day of a Jewish feast, a fall feast called Tabernacles. Uh, the Hebrew word is Sukkot. And a tabernacle is basically a tent. And this eight-day feast celebrated and remembered the years before they entered the promised land, before they were a nation with a land, when God led them through the Sinai wilderness and they lived in tents. And so every year they would move out of their homes into tents and they would celebrate. They would feast. Uh, and of course, anytime you have large numbers of people camping and feasting and enjoying a lot of wine, which was also part of the tradition, it would take no imagination whatsoever to sense that a few people might end up in other people's tents and we'll keep it PG. Um, and I tell you that uh, to, to kind of explain the context for what happens next. So early morning, sun is up, Jesus is teaching, and another character enters the story. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, those are the religious professional guys, the rule followers, brought a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, and just, just pause for a second. Again, it's interesting. They've got this woman and it's early in the morning. 
And you have to say, okay, so what happened is the night before somehow they caught her in the act of adultery, they detained her overnight, which is kind of creepy on a number of levels, right? And then in the morning, they haul her up those steps, through the gates, up onto the Temple Mount, and place her right at the center of the crowd, right in front of Jesus, and engage Jesus in a conversation, and what we see here is that these religious leaders were already increasingly suspicious of Jesus, what he was teaching about God, what he was teaching about the law, and they wanted a showdown with him. Jesus' popularity was growing, and they wanted everyone to see how Jesus was breaking from their tradition. They have an agenda that morning, in other words, and it's not the welfare of this poor woman. So here's what they say to Jesus. They said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And, and, and I just imagine as the voices start to get louder, the crowd grows. People sort of lean in and they've watched this, this woman, you know, dragged into the temple courts. I mean, this is the last place she wants to be. It's also important for us to know that this was a Jewish woman and this Jewish woman would have been on the Temple Mount many, many times since childhood. Uh, every time before, she would have sinned and wanted to get right with God. And so she would have brought a sacrifice up those steps, up through the gates, up onto the temple. And she would offer a sacrifice for her sins. But she had a very real sense that this morning, she was about to be sacrificed for her sin. So here's what the, the teachers say to Jesus. Um, they say, in the law, which I love because they're like going to give Jesus a lecture on the law. Like, that's not going to go well, by the way. But anyway, in the law, the Old Testament law, the, the one that Moses gave us, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. In other words, pick up rocks, throw them at the woman until she dies. Now, what do you say? So this is what Moses said, Jesus. What, what, what do you say? And I'm telling you, you could have heard a pin drop on the Temple Mount that day. And Jesus could have said a lot of things. He could have reminded them that in the first century, Jews were under Roman rule and they didn't have the authority to kill anybody without Roman approval. So the whole thing is sort of a, you know, abstract question. There would have been no stoning. But, but Jesus could have said, well, if Moses said to stone her, stone her. Or, or maybe he could have said, you know, why did you drag her all the way up here and bring her in front of me if you're so sure of her guilt? Or, or maybe, why did you bring her all the way up here if you already know what the law says? And if Jesus had our sense of humor, you know what I think he would have said to them? He would have gotten a little punchy and he said, well, guys, actually, uh, yeah, I know what Moses said, but um, you're missing a person. L let, me, let me show you what Moses said back in the Old Testament. It's in a book called Leviticus, which is a great read. No. Anyway, <laughs> Leviticus, Moses says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. And we'll, we'll, you know, we don't have to talk about what they're supposed to do, but Jesus is like, okay, I see her, and you said you caught her in the act of adultery, and one of the translations says, in the very act, which makes it that much more awkward, right? And Jesus is like, where's the guy? Guys, right? But, but again, they, they don't care. They're just trying to separate from Moses. And John tells us as much uh, in the next verse. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Uh, Jesus, you're teaching against Moses. You're teaching against the temple. And, and they wanted to divide Jesus from the people. Again, he's getting popular and they're getting concerned. And so now they have a crowd and they're in the right spot. And it's the perfect opportunity because if Jesus goes against Moses and the law and the temple, well, he'll lose popularity. So in a sense, that morning at sunrise on the Temple Mount, there was a trial going on and it was Jesus versus Moses. 
Jesus versus the Old Testament law. And it's like they're just poking him. Jesus, are you saying you're greater than Moses? Are you saying you're greater than the law? And I'm telling you, as dramatic as I'm trying to make that sound, we don't get it. I think the first 12 disciples of Jesus, those 12 guys, would have sort of started to move back when the religious leaders started to question Jesus because they're like, there's no way this is going to go well, right? I think all of them, you know, were like, hey, we got to go to the bathroom. John, just stay back, take some notes because we're going to write this down later, right? Yeah. And so it, it, was, it, was a, it was a tense, tense moment. And in this tense, tense moment, Jesus does something awesome. Check out what he does. Next verse, he says, but Jesus bent down, doesn't say a word, bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And of course, when you read something like this, you're like, this is why I don't read the Bible. What in the world? Jesus is writing with his finger. It doesn't even make any sense. And, and so Bible nerds have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what in the world was he writing. And there is a theory that I think has a lot of merit. And it has to do with the fact that because this was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot, one of the verses that they would have recently studied came from an Old, prophet, Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. And the passage they would have read had to do with dust. Check out what Jeremiah says 600 years before Jesus. He says, Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. So Jesus takes a passage they would have been familiar with and enacts it. And without saying a word, communicates something powerful. He looks at these religious professionals and he basically says to them, listen, you have rejected God's heart. It is you and not this woman who have turned away from God. And so you say, well, what, what exactly did he write? I have a theory. I can't prove it. I think he wrote their names. And just imagine with me for a minute if they had never met before. And Jesus starts writing their names in the dust. It wouldn't have been the coolest thing Jesus ever did, I'm telling you. But that would have been awesome. So, they just keep talking because they're not sure what to do. Next, next uh, slide here. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, okay, here's a new plan, guys. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You're clean. You got nothing against you and God? Then go ahead. Because guys, let's not forget where we're standing. We're in the shadow of the temple. I mean, how many times have you climbed up those stairs because you had done something and you knew you were sideways with God and you brought a lamb or a ram or a goat or a bird and you hiked up those stairs and you went before the priest and the blood spilled because of your sin. I mean, you know your con this context reminds you of your personal failures. You've been coming here since childhood. So let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What I think is fascinating is there actually was someone on the Temple Mount that day who was without sin. He's the only one who's ever walked the face of the earth without sin. And, and this argument wins the day. Check out how the religious leaders respond. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. I love this detail. The older ones first. Why the older ones? They'd taken the most trips up those steps, right? They knew the drill. They knew they weren't perfect. 
And here they were calling this lady out in her failure when they were very aware that they failed too. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. In other words, they left the temple. They, they, they walked back down the stairs. I think in this moment, their self-righteousness dawned on them. They realized how many times they deserved to be stoned for their sin. Because in the Old Testament, there's lots of different reasons that people got stoned when they sinned, or at least that was what was commanded, including stone the rebellious child, which obviously was not intended to be taken seriously, or all of human, you know, movement forward would have ceased because we would have no children anymore. So that was just how that goes. I'm just saying that's for free. Um, yeah, yeah. So straightening up, as he continues, uh, Straightening up, Jesus said to her, so there's just the two of them standing there. He says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And notice he didn't say, did no one accuse you? Because she had been accused. And he doesn't say, are you guilty of your sin? Because she'd been caught in the act. The real question here is, you know, so there's no one forcing you to pay for your sin? And she replies, she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus looked back at her and Jesus said, and, and, and just, I mean, for some of you, this is why you came today. For some of you, you haven't been in church for a long time because of something you did. And you thought, this fall, I'll give, it, I'll give it one more chance. Some of you may have come this morning because of something that happened last night. And you're like, maybe we can hopefully even it out. And, but every single one of us has had a time in our life where we've needed to hear something from Jesus. And we weren't sure we'd ever hear it. And, and when we hear it, we're not even sure we believe it. But what Jesus says next is at the very heart of what Keystone is about. And as a team, it's what we need to keep front and center about how Jesus wants us to interact with broken and hurting people, including ourselves. Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. In other words, I won't force you to pay for what you've done. And in saying this, Jesus was announcing something absolutely incredible. He was basically saying that he was greater than Moses and he was greater than the temple. And he was greater than the whole Old Testament system. In fact, the whole Old Testament system was a big sign pointing to him. And he was on the scene and it was a brand new day. Not too many months after this, the followers of Jesus would learn something even more incredible. That Jesus came to replace the whole system through his death on the cross, through his resurrection. So Jesus says, I don't condemn you either, but, but there's more because he tells her one more thing. He gives her instructions. So he meets her in that place with grace. And then he says something incredible. She says, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, you're free to go, but, but from here on out, you know, sin no more. But notice with me that Jesus' command to stop sinning comes with an unexpected tone. Because in that moment, Jesus wasn't condemning her. He was compassionate. And compassion is the tone that Jesus used when he interacted with people who were caught in their sin, who were broken in their sin. And, and it, this is interesting because for many of us, we would say, this is not the tone I grew up with in my church. And this may not have been the tone of your pastor or your mom or your dad or your neighbor who's a Christian. Or maybe you watch some of those cable channel preachers. You know, we'll find you a new hobby, but right? The, the cable channel, and that's not their tone either. But at this moment, like Jesus expresses his heart towards sinners. He urges people, us, to leave sin because sin robs us of life. 
It's like every time we sin, something dies. Sin always kills. It'll kill our conscience. It'll corrupt our mind. It'll kill our body. It can kill our relationships. It can kill our self-respect. It can kill our reputation. It can destroy our self-control. It's like, so that day on the Temple Mount, because he loved her, he looked this woman in the eye and he said, I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. It's like, he's like, I don't need to punish you. I don't need to condemn you. Your sin has already hurt you. It's already killed your reputation in the community. So leave it behind. It's not good for you. God has a bigger plan for your life. And here we see like the big difference between what Jesus did and what religion of all stripes tends to do. Because I would argue that religion always says, when you sin, you break God's law. Like there are the rules. Here are the rules. You broke the rules. But Jesus comes along and says, when you sin, you break God's heart. Because he's for you and he loves you and he knows that sin will destroy you. And so he's like, listen, you need, I don't want you drowning in guilt. I'm going to make a way for that to be paid for. But I need you to leave sin behind because it's hurting you and it's hurting other people. Go and sin no more. Sin breaks God's heart. And what's interesting is, is a little while after this conversation, Jesus would die for this woman's adultery. And she would die for your adultery And she died for all the rest of her sins and all the rest of all of our sins. And so it's like Jesus says, you know, so so don't sin. Not because God will get you, but because sin will get you. And your heavenly father loves you. And you know he loves you. And you know he's for you because he sent Jesus to die for you. And anyone who would offer his one and only son to die for you is for you. So before we wrap, just a, just a, a brief thought question. If you said, okay, just took inventory of your life, what's your sin? Is it a habit? Is it a pattern? Is it an addiction? And you know it's, you know it's not good for you and you know it's offensive to God, but, but maybe this, this bit of like God being for you would maybe help you rethink it. Maybe it's time for you to leave something behind. Like, I know it's hurting me. I know it's hurting other people and maybe I've been doing it for so long I don't even realize it's wrong anymore, but But just maybe for a moment, just think, what would it look like to leave it or pour it out or throw it away or pack up and move out or pack up and move back in? It's like Jesus says, leave your life of sin because it's hurting you and your heavenly father wants so much more for you. A quick PS, about a month ago, my wife and I were standing on the southern steps in the temple in Jerusalem. And while we were there, um, the guy who was, our guide was teaching us, and I look over at the wall, and those are the gates. They've been bricked up. And I, I sat there, and I actually, to be honest, I stopped listening to the guide at that point because I got really excited to tell you about the gates being bricked up. But, and I thought, isn't that poetic? I mean, there's no temple on top either, but you no longer go through those gates, up those steps to get out of the temple mount, and you don't need to. Because of something that happened within walking distance of that spot, you don't need to because of Jesus. There's no reason to walk the stairway to heaven to deal with your sins because Jesus already dealt with your sins. You place your faith in him, his righteousness, his right standing with God is transferred on you. And so then the only thing left to do would be to just say, okay, then in light of that, I need to stop my sin. Sin no more. 
so the two principles that I see in this, in this narrative that have been right at the heart of Keystone since the beginning. And they, the idea comes directly from Jesus. We want to be a church where everyone is welcome to join us as we wrestle down what it means to find and follow Jesus. And in order to do that, we need to fight to keep this place a welcoming place for everyone. That we meet people who come and bring sin into this place. We meet them with compassion and then we point them forward and say, listen, it's hurting you. It's hurting others. Go and sin no more. Team, that's how we reflect the heart of Jesus. And I'll close, I want to read you just one more section of an email that came in from somebody that visited us over the summer. When I get these emails, by the way, this is like me spiking the pen, sending it to everybody I know that I'm excited. But anyway, here we go. Share this with you. Uh, After spending much of my life at a church, I've been estranged for the past eight years. As you know, the church can be very judgmental for those of us that have been through a divorce. I've accepted God's forgiveness and grace, and I've been ready to find a church that accepts me and us. My wife and I look forward to attending again and are hopeful we may have found a home. Once again, thank you and your entire team. And I want to say that's all of y'all for making us feel so welcome this morning. And, And this is the sort of thing that just throws fuel on my fire because I believe that this is the sort of place that Jesus wants as he restores relationship with lost and hurting and broken people. So the good news for all of us this morning is that whoever we are, whatever we've done, whatever we believe, Jesus invites us to turn from sin and to follow. We're not disqualified. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, God isn't done with you yet. And finally, whoever you are and whatever you've done, you belong at Keystone. Friends, That is the message that we get to carry in our community. That is the message that many, many of our friends need to hear. And that is a message that is nothing short of irresistible. Would you stand? And I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we want to begin just by saying thank you. Thank you for the vision and the passion and the sacrifice that launched this place. Thank you for all of us who have understood grace in a new way because of the community here at Keystone. And I pray that you would bring to mind friends that need to come back home. For all of us, I pray you'd help us to keep this the most welcoming place possible. We want more and more and more stories of people coming to know you as their heavenly father. As a God of compassion and grace and love that is beyond anything we can even imagine. And so we thank you. We bless you. We praise you in the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Everyone said, amen. Friends, we'll see you next week for part two of Locker Room.